Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Hey man, that was beautiful. Good morning everybody, how we doing? The few, the proud, the got their clock set right crowd, all right. Now listen, we've been working through Ephesians, and it's been a lot about after the gospel in the first three chapters, and then verse 4 and 5 are how we're supposed to be gracious and kind-hearted towards one another. So this is an opportunity for us collectively, when somebody comes rolling in about 11.30, to live out the gospel and be kind-hearted to one another, and not use it as an opportunity for spiritual pride. I'll be watching. I can see the expressions on your face, and I can tell who is caught up in pride. All right, well listen, my name is Brad. I'm glad that you're here today. I'm one of the pastors, um, and we're going to get into it today. We're in Ephesians chapter 5 is where we are. We've been working our way through that book. Hey, maybe it wasn't the time change. Maybe it was the topic that we're going to handle today that got some of you. Uh, This is one of the reasons why, friends, that we just work through books of the Bible so we can't avoid passages like this that sometimes you think should have like a little wick attached to them because it can be like uh, spiritual dynamite for some people. But this paragraph, this block of verses at the end of Ephesians 5 is is I've really been looking forward to this. In fact, I think we're going to take two Sundays on this, this text because it's so important. And uh, we'll get into that in just a second. Hey, before we, we get into it, let me just mention Peter and Sally aren't a young military couple, are down here to my left, and they're on the third row there. And today's their last Sunday at Crosspoint. They have been here. He's been doing the captain's career course, or whatever they call it nowadays. And he is now moving on. They're going to Fort Bragg, North Carolina for a little while. He's in the Special Forces. And then they're going to go to Fort Lewis, Washington. And, um, and it's just been a joy to have them as part of our, as part of our little tribe here for the past, uh, I don't know, six, seven, eight months or so. And it just reminds me of how, how thankful we are for our military, for our Army. Just this last Friday, I was out at Fort Benning watching the Army spring football game. Um, and we actually won. <laughs> we also lost. But anyway, it's kind of a weird, it's an inter-squad scrimmage. But um, I'm chalking it up as a victory for the old Army team. But... Uh, I mean, you almost lost me Friday, man. I almost just, I almost just re-upped and just said, I'm, I'm going back into the Army. I mean, it was just, just so uh, filled with uh, thankfulness for our military. Had a few old wounded warriors there and, and heroes from wars past and wars present that they highlighted and uh, a couple Medal of Honor winners and this young uh, captain that, that lost his eyesight in, in, um, in Iraq and I was just so thankful for our military, and you know, it's easy to see guys like Peter and lots of other soldiers that are here on Sunday mornings, and look at them, they look like they could run forever, and like they eat nails for breakfast, and they're just real impressive looking people, but it's another thing to sort of see behind the veil and remember that these men and women uh, put themselves in harm's way, and oftentimes um, have very terrible and harsh things happen to them. And so um, as, we, as we hug Peter and Sally's neck today and wish them well as they go off, we, re- we remember that, that, um, that war is a horrible thing. It's a necessary thing. But we're very, very thankful for our men and women that, um, that serve us very, very well. Um, America's not a perfect place, but I'm very thankful that in God's providence, he had us here. So thank you, Peter and Sally. We love you guys. Let's give them a just a hand. Yeah, good All right. All right. 
All right, well, as we get into this um, text, I want to give away, I want to highlight a couple books that we have for sale in our resource center, and, and we say for sale, um, but you know that we really uh, just put a suggested price. We buy a bunch of books that we think would be good resources for you to read um, that are solid theologically and helpful in living out the Christian life. We put a suggested price on there, so if you can't afford it, just put whatever you can in there. If you don't have the money, just take it. Um, we don't care. Um, we, we just want good books and good resources to be in the hands of, of our people. And there's two books in particular that we want to highlight today that will be there. Um, they're in the resource room. We're going to have a bunch of them in the next couple weeks. And they are books that deal with the topic that we're going to look at for the next couple weeks in Ephesians 5, marriage, biblical marriage, and manhood and womanhood. And the first book is, um, is I, I just can't recommend this book highly enough. It's called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And it's edited by John Piper and Wayne Grudem, but it is a compilation, compilation of... Comp- wow. I, I, I suddenly... I mean, I forgot the word. Compilation. I'm sorry. Of, of, of a bunch of different works from probably 20 or 25 different authors and, and pastors and theologians on a whole range of issues regarding biblical manhood, womanhood, marriage, roles of men and women in the home and in the church. This is an excellent resource. It looks thick. It is thick. It's not something that you read from cover to cover. You can like jump down into a particular chapter that interests you. Each chapter is kind of a standalone sort of of work. And so um, this would be a great book for you to get. Um, <laughs> we got Anita's one. To, she's eight or nine or ten, and she's wanting to read this book. Anybody want, um, anybody want this book? Martha Campbell. I saw Martha's hand go up. Ren, I'll give that to Martha. There you go. Um, and then a much shorter and abridged version of one of the, or two of those chapters is a book by John Piper. As you know, if you're around here, this is a, a, a man in ministry, Desiring God Ministries, which has had a real impact and significant um, impact on us as a church and me as a Christian and and pastor. And he wrote a much shorter book called What's the Difference? Manhood and Womanhood Defined According to the Bible. And so I see Josh Orlich back there um, in the booth. So Josh, you can get this. And uh, both of these books are for sale in the Resource Center. Again, that's a suggested price. Thanks, Reynold. And and get it and chew it up. And if we we run out, um, clapping for you. (laughs) Get out of here. What are you talking about? And, uh, and, if, and we'll order more. Um, we want to facilitate um, good, good resources. All right, before I read this text, um, here's, here's my aim these next two weeks. Um, I, I, want to, I want to saturate us. I want to lift our hearts and our eyes so that collectively, whether we are single or married, young or old, dating or not dating, that we collectively as a family have a, a just a God-saturated, Bible-infused, high view of marriage. And, and I want to do this not by appealing to sort of sentimentality or overly practical tips on how we should get along better, okay? I think when we do that, when we, when we reduce relational issues or marriage or any other thing in the Christian life merely to just sort of pragmatic tips as to how we can do it better, what I think we do is we, we jettison the purpose of the universe, which is to glorify God, and we reduce the scriptures down to a sort of self-help manual, and I think that is a terrible, terrible mistake. Now, having said that, uh, I do think uh, that probably one of my weaknesses as a pastor, preacher, teacher is that a lot of times I don't do a real good job of connecting theology to actual life. 
And how does this actually then work itself out? How, because that is a component of it. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to read this text, and rather than an exposition or an explanation of these verses, which is what we usually do, we're going to look at sort of a 30,000-foot view of some principles that I think the Bible would have us grab a hold of in regards to manhood, womanhood, and a biblical view of marriage. So we're going to sort of be in the clouds today with a, a theological overview of this issue, and then next week... We're going to land the plane a little bit more and get down into the text and look at what specifically it means for the man to be the head of the wife and for a woman to submit to her husband as to the Lord. And I think if we dive right into that and just kind of come up with, with more practical stuff without sort of the theological underpinnings of it all, we really do ourselves a disservice. And so that's where we're going to spend two weeks in this text, kind of the big theology and then the, how it hits the ground next week. And then two more things I want to say before we start this is just a word to single people here this morning. Um, I I want you to, I see somebody giving it the fist pump there, yeah. Um, A word to single people here this morning. Uh, Marriage, although very important, is not ultimate. In fact, it's not even eternal. Jesus says in a conversation in Mark chapter 12, some religious leaders of the day were trying to, to give him one of those little zingers, one of the little trick questions, and they came up with this hypothetical situation of a woman who had been married seven times to seven different brothers. She married one, he passed away, and then the other one re- fulfilled his responsibility to his brother, and she, then he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And so she's got seven brothers who were her seven husbands, and now she died. Who's, who's, hu- whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And Jesus says, no, no, you, you don't understand it at all that in the resurrection, in other words, in our final glorified state with Jesus forever and ever and ever, he says there will be, we won't be given to marriage, there won't even be marriage in the sense that we know it. We won't, we're not, it's not, we're in a different sort of reality. And I know that really contrasts with, you know, some of the hallmark, you know, I'll love you, you know, nothing's going to separate us, not even heaven. Well, <laughs> uh, actually, there's this, see, and we'll get into this, marriage is just a temporal foreshadowing of a greater reality of human and God relationship that is to come. I also want you to know that if you're single, singleness is not second-class citizenship in God's society. Jesus was the most fully alive human ever, and he was, during his years here on the earth, single. I also want to say to those that may be single today and you may be in a stage of life where it seems like and you desire to be married and the prospects for mar- marriage may be that window may be closing. I want to encourage you by to, I want to encourage you to say don't waste your singleness by making an idol out of marriage. Don't waste your singleness by making an idol out of marriage. Marriage is not ultimate. Marriage does not make you a full human being. And then finally to single people here this morning as we spend the rest of this service talking about and next week talking about what it is to be married in a biblical way. My hope is that here at Crosspoint, if you are single, you will find yourself in a redemptive culture of truth speakers who love one another enough to point each other to settling for nothing less than satisfaction in God. 
satisfaction in God, whatever that looks like in his providence in your life. And then finally, before we read and I get into these points that I want to make today, another word just finally to those of you that may be in this room that are divorced. Divorce is not, an, not the unpardonable sin. And if you are divorced, you do not need to sort of walk around cross point with a sort of spiritual tail between your legs as if you are supposed to live in a perpetual state of failure. Friends, nothing could be further from the truth. There is grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. And although this message and next week will not be about divorce, we did talk about divorce sometime last year when we were looking at 1 Corinthians, and I would point you to a message back in February of 2011 that's on our website from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 about divorce, remarriage, and the gospel. So now let's center our hearts on this text. I'm going to read it. And then I'll pray, and then we'll, we'll look at it from a, a big view of what marriage is. Let me, let me read. Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Well, Father, as we come to this text, um, we come to it through Jesus's perfect work on the cross. We come to it because of what he has done for us. We were rebels running away from you, but in your sovereign kindness, you made us alive, gave us a new heart so that we could even have faith in you and turn from our self-reliance and sin and trust in you. And so, Lord, we come with humility and boldness as we come to you through Jesus, made alive by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, I, I come to you with uh, a gravity knowing that as I read these words and as I think about my own life and my own marriage, how so much more progress I personally have to make in this area by your grace. Probably more in this area than any other area that I may preach on out of the scriptures, uh, 
Lord, I come not by the authority of my sanctification or achievement, but solely by your grace and by the authority of your word. And Lord, I pray as we now, as a group of men and women, married and single, as we collectively sink our teeth into this text, I pray that you'd give us great grace for these next two Sundays. I pray that you'd stir in our hearts an affection for a biblical view of what it means to be a husband or a wife. I pray that we would do this not so that it would terminate on us, but so that through us collectively we would be a better display of your gospel and so thereby more people would come and trust in Jesus as a result of the witness of this local faith family. And Lord, I pray for the friends that may be in this room this morning who are not yet believers in Jesus, whether they realize it or not. I pray, God, that by your mercy, by the life-giving power of your Holy Spirit, through the good news of the gospel, you might make people alive by giving them, giving them a heart of faith so that they can believe and eyes that they can trust and look and see at Jesus and turn from self-trust and sin and turn in faith and repentance to Jesus. Lord, would you do all of this for your glory and for the joy of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. I have five principles that I want to draw out, not just from this text, but from uh, the whole scriptures, and then I think that will be enough for today, and then we'll, we'll land the plane next week into application. Point number one, men and women are made in the image of God, equal in personhood and importance. I think that's something we really need to establish before we even venture into any discussion of roles and submission and headship in marriage. Men and women are made in the image of God and equal in personhood and importance. Let me read to you from the first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image. By the way, that's just a beautiful little reference to the Trinity, even in the first page of the Bible, before we even get into a fuller explanation and, and, and unfolding of, of God's nature is three in one. We, we see there, let us, God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And so we see there from just the first chapter of the Bible that God creates man, he creates male and female, and both of them are created equally in God's image. And so to be a male is to be fully uh, created in God's image. To be a female is to be fully created in God's image. We could spend all Sunday just looking at this idea of the equality of our personhood in Christ, in being created as male or female. But that's one verse in the Old Testament. Let's just flip forward to Galatians chapter 3. Just if you're in Ephesians, you can just flip over to the left. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. Paul writes this in Galatians 3, verse 28. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, 
what Paul is saying here is that he's not saying that there aren't still distinctions between us as far as maybe our vocation or maybe our ethnicity or even our gender. But what he's making the point there in, Genesis, in Galatians chapter 3 is that in terms of how we come to faith, how we come to trust in God, how we become a child of God, all of us, whether we are Jew or Greek, slave or free, male and female, there's no distinction. We all come to God through faith in Jesus. Ironically enough, that, that scripture right there is used by people that would disagree with, with, with how we would see the differing roles between men and women and how men have certain roles in the church and home. Oftentimes, this verse is used to sort of negate that and to say that there's no distinction between men and women because it says there there's neither male or female. And what Paul is saying there is not that there aren't obvious differences in roles and responsibilities, but that in how people come to know Jesus in our standing and our and our value before him and how we come to him through faith in Jesus, there's no difference. And so, so if we look back at Genesis, we see sort of this physical aspect of our importance and personhood. Whether it be male or female, we are, we are equal before God's eyes. And then this sort of spiritual relationship, how we come to faith, there's neither Jew nor Greek or, or slave or free or male or female. So this sort of physical and spiritual, we are equal in personhood and importance before God, whether we are male and female. And by the way, we're also equal in our sin. Romans 3.23 says that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, male and female. And even though, in a sense, the scriptures speak of in Genesis chapter 3 where Eve was tempted first and, and in a sense, I guess, their reed sort of took the first bite. Well, you could make a, a great case that Adam is standing there and maybe his, the first sin is his passivity to not lead her well. And then even then, God, when he speaks to Adam and Eve, puts the responsibility and speaks to Adam there. And so that's getting a little ahead of ourselves about the, the headship and the responsibility that rests on Adam as the head. But the point is, is that we are all equal in personhood, in importance, in our creation, in our salvation, and in our need for salvation, that we have all sinned. Number two, marriage exists to display the glory of God. Now, this is where we have to do a little work in our culture where we have TV shows and reality TV shows that are, um, it's like dr- it, much, of, much of the uh, personification of marriage that comes out of the entertainment industry, it, it, it's like just putting a Dixie cup down to the sewer and, and drinking in uh, sewage is basically w- what it's like. Marriage exists not primarily for our happiness, but for the display of the glory of God. Listen to Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. Maybe my favorite verse in the whole Bible, plus Romans 8. Listen to this. I mean, this is, this is, this is, this is just, this is the biblical worldview. Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? And then verse 36, listen to this. You can tag verse 36 onto anything, any topic, any issue, any situation. Verse 36 applies. For from him 
and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. But what about war? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. But what about sickness? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. What about evil? What about sin? In some mysterious way that we can never know this side of eternity. For from him and through him and to him are all things, including marriage. To him be all glory forever and ever. Friends, if you just want to orient yourself before you, I think that should be like the starting place to orient your heart to just a biblical view, a God-saturated view of all things. That would be, if you, if you, haven't, if you haven't bended your heart, if you haven't bowed your heart to that one great overarching reality, then I think you're going to struggle with some of the difficult parts of the Bible. Marriage exists first and foremost, to display the glory of God. And so marriage is not for us. It's not for, it's not for our physical pleasure. It's not for our financial benefit. It's not primarily for our companionship. It's not merely primarily for procreation. It's not merely primarily for order in society, although certainly all of those things are spokes off of the hub of the great, grand, and central purpose of marriage, which is to display the glory of God. And in these next three truths that we're going to look at really flow from that one great truth, that marriage exists to display the glory of God. And the third point is this. Marriage is to be a reflection of the Trinity. Marriage is to be a reflection of the Trinity. Let's read back where we were in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. It says... Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul there is quoting Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, where that's a direct quote from Moses who wrote Genesis, saying that a man shall leave his father and mother, he shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then in verse 32 of Ephesians 5, Paul, Paul says there, he says, this mystery is profound. And he goes on to say that it refers to Christ and the church. But there's this mysterious union that happens between a husband and a wife when they get married. It's not just a legal ceremony when now two are one in the eyes of the state or you can now file your taxes together or there's this sort of, you know, now obvious we have the same address. Much deeper than that, much deeper than that and much, much more spiritually important is this idea that two become one kind of like the very difficult to understand mysterious truth of the Trinity. In fact, in another one of Paul's letters, in 1 Corinthians, he actually makes that connection that marriage is to be a sort of reflection like the relationships in the Trinity. So let me read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, we'll have it on the screen. This is what Paul says. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ... The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God, meaning God the Father. See, so do you see the, the sort of comparisons that Paul is making there? He's saying that the head of a man is Christ, and the head of a, man, of a woman is her husband, 
And if that's all we had to say about that, we would sort of think, well, I could maybe see a possibility where a woman might sort of bristle at that. But look at the, then the connection that he makes there between the headship of the man to the woman. Just as he is saying, God the Father is the head of God the Son. And so in the Trinity, we have this equality in worth, equality in glory. The Father is, is glorious and completely God, and the Son is completely glorious and completely God, and the Holy Spirit is completely glorious and completely God, and, and they are all, all equal, three in one, not diminished, not, not less than the other, but you see this sort of subordination, you see this submission even within the Trinity where the Son is joyfully submitting to the Father, and the Father is wanting the glory to go to the Son, and the Holy Spirit is proceeding from God and the, the Son, God the Father and the Son, bringing back glory, shining light on the Son and the Father. And we have this submissive, sort of beautiful Trinitarian relationship that exists between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that beautiful joy of unending fellowship is the model for the headship of a husband over the wife. Now let me just pause here for a second and say that how can that be a sort of lesser than existence? I think sometimes one of the hurdles we have to get over in our culture is just this view of submission, which we'll talk about here in just a moment and really unpack next week. But do you see the freedom in that? Women, if I could just appeal to you for a second, if, if that word submission just causes you to sort of tighten up, do you see that the comparison that Paul is making there is to how Christ submits to the Father? How can being compared to Jesus be anything but, but empowering and, and life-giving? Do you see the freedom of seeing that submitting to headship is actually really the epitome of Christ-likeness? And you see the really the unenviable position of wanting to reject that because that's exactly how God the Father and God the Son exist together in this head and submission relationship. Point number four. This is whittling it down now. Marriage is to be a reflection of the relationship between Christ and His church. Marriage is to be a reflection of the relationship between Christ and his church. Let me read a couple of the verses from Ephesians that we read just a moment ago, starting again in verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is it himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the words, so that he might present the church, his bride, to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So do you see there clearly? In fact, then at the end of, of that passage in verse 32, we just read it a second ago, speaking of this mystery of two becoming one that this mystery is profound and it refers to Christ and the church. So marriage is to be a reflection of the relationship between Jesus and his bride, the church. 
The covenant between a man and a woman here on this earth is meant to point to the covenant between Christ and his bride. And friends, by the way, this is why, this is why divorce is such a, a serious issue. And this is why if you are in the middle of a difficult and struggling marriage and you are considering divorce, I would just want to plead with you that there's something greater going on in your marriage than your earthly happiness. There's a display of Christ's relationship to his church. And if you are a husband considering leaving your wife, you realize it's not just about your feelings in that moment or your compatibility or irreconcilable differences. What's going on in your marriage, even in its struggle, is to be a reflection of the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. And friends, Christ never leaves his bride. Now, as we spoke about in that message that I referred you to earlier from last year in Corinthians, there are situations in the scriptures where there are exceptions for the possibility of a biblical divorce. And Jesus gives those to us, I think, realizing that we are frail and that in certain areas of sin and human brokenness, uh, we just can't hold up. And so in the Gospels, Jesus says that infidelity is a biblical reason for divorce. But even then, I think God's heart would be for reconciliation to be a beautiful display of grace. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul gives the, the exception of an unbelieving spouse deserting the marriage. And in that situation, the believing spouse is not bound to that marriage anymore. And that would be an, a biblical reason for divorce. But even then, how beautiful would it be for, for that spouse to, to trust God? Well, I don't want to get too deep into that because this is not about divorce and remarriage. But I want to lift our hearts and our eyes to see that the covenant that exists between a man and a woman is about much more than earthly happiness. It is to reflect Christ's relationship with his church. And of course, we are not perfect like Jesus. And husbands, we will fail again and again in treating our wives like Christ treats the church. But as we humble ourselves and as we give ourselves over to community and to the word, how we grow together and how we endure and bear with one another becomes a sort of collective witness that points to something beyond our temporal 80 years. It points beyond our happiness. It points outside of us to the covenant-keeping God who saves us. And keeps us for his glory. Friends, this is, this is where I think most prominently marriage reflects the gospel. Paul tells husbands that they're to give themselves up for their wives. I mean, what does that mean? It doesn't, it doesn't just mean opening doors and mowing the lawn and moving the refrigerator, although certainly those are outcroppings of what it means to be a man. 
but, but, but what it means is to, to literally lay down your life as a sacrifice. And what's that pointing to, friends? That's pointing to the gospel. That's pointing to the heart of the message of the Bible, what Jesus has done for his bride. He lays down his life, taking the punishment of a holy and righteous God the Father. He takes the shot. He absorbs the hit that has come upon us because of our sin and he dies for us so that all those who will be, who will hide themselves in his work, all those who will stand behind him and submit to what Jesus has done, all those will have life in him. And that act on the cross, do you see that? I mean, he doesn't tell Wives to submit and husbands to serve and love and lay down their lives because it's a good tip for how to get along. It may be those things, but he tells us to do that, friends, because it most clearly reflects the most important truth in the world, which is trust in what God has done in Christ alone. So you see that. So this isn't about compatibility. This isn't about just navigating through for your own personal happiness. All of those things may be important, friends, but at its core, marriage is a reflection of the gospel where the husband, Jesus, lays down his life and takes the hit for our sin for his bride so that she might live. And when a husband grabs a hold of that primary purpose of his role as a husband, it amplifies, it gives life to everything that he does. Because it goes way beyond just a tit for tat, or I'll do this so that you do this, or if I do this, then you do this. It goes way beyond a conditional relationship. Do you see that? It amplifies and magnifies our roles as husbands to be the life-giving, self-sacrificing, jump in front of the bullet, stand in front of the horde of ravaging Rebels to step in front of the train, to take the shot across the jaw, to be the protector, to be the leader, to be the self-sacrificing, Christ-like man. And, and, and I think the key to all of this is men understanding the gospel-saturated picture of marriage. And when a man gets a hold of that, when a man gets a hold of that, how easy and how willing are the vast majority of women to follow that? Who doesn't want to stand behind a man that will take a bullet for you? And I'm not just talking about a physical bullet. I'm talking about a spiritual onslaught. What woman doesn't want that? I mean, we all want that. We, we need that from our husband, Jesus as part of the bride of Christ. So marriage is to be a reflection of the relationship between Christ and the church, and at its core, it is to reflect the gospel. And before we land this thing and get into application, we need to wrestle with that. And fifth and final point, men and women have different and complementary roles in marriage. We're going to introduce this this Sunday, and then this primarily is what we're going to dig into next week and look at what it feels like and should be like on the ground. But men and women have different and complementary roles in marriage. 
Back to our text. It says in verse 22 of Ephesians 5, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So men, just briefly, to sort of whet our appetite for next week, what does it mean for the husband to be the head? I've got this verbatim from the book that um, somebody got earlier. Was it Martha? The Recovering, the bigger book, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. This is a quote from Piper and Grudem on page 61 of the introduction to that book. What does it mean for the husband to be the head? In the home, biblical headship is the husband's divine calling to take primary responsibility for Christ-like leadership, protection, and provision. As we'll get into it next week, there are in many, many different ways that that might play out within the home. There are many, there's a lot of freedom as to what that exactly looks like, but headship for the man is that he, it's his divine calling to take the primary responsibility for Christ-like leadership, protection, and provision in the home. And what does it mean for women to submit to her husband? Again, a direct quote from the introduction to Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood from Piper and Grudem. What does it mean for women to submit for a woman to submit to her husband. I love this definition. And it's longer, not because women need to do more, but because I think there's more misunderstanding of what submission is. I mean, we're more junked up on that, aren't we? Because of the abuse of, of men. Not because women are rebellious any more than men are, but because of the, the domineering sin of men or the passivity of men. And this is what they say, submission refers to a wife's divine calling to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. It is not an absolute surrender of her will. Rather, we speak of her disposition to yield to her husband's guidance and her inclination to follow his leadership. Christ is her absolute authority, not the husband. She submits out of reverence for Christ, as we read in Ephesians 5, 21. The supreme authority of Christ qualifies the authority of her husband. She should never follow her husband into sin. Nevertheless, even when she may have to stand, listen to this sentence now, nevertheless, even when she may have to stand with Christ against the sinful will of her husband, for example, in 1 Peter 3, 1, where she does not yield to her husband's unbelief, she can still have a spirit of submission, a disposition to yield. She can show by her attitude and behavior that she does not like resisting his will and that she longs for him to forsake sin and lead in righteousness so that her disposition to honor him as head can again produce harmony. And I would add to that then after that harmony, which, harmony, which then again produces a better reflection of who God is in relationship to his people which then produces a more beautiful, irresistible image to the world of what the gospel is. Well, there's so much more we could say about headship and submission, and that's what next week is for. But I wanted to lay out these beginning five principles to give us a sort of overarching view of what it is to be husband and wife and what a biblical view of marriage is. And I end with this. I imagine that there are two types of reaction to these truths. There are very likely people in this room who 
maybe have never heard these truths before and may disagree with them. And you may disagree with them because um, it just seems sort of outdated and ancient. And how can we take this sort of ancient 2,000-year-old truth, and certainly there's some cultural things in the Bible, and whether well, not all of them apply, and this is certainly one of them. I hear that argument a lot. That, friends, if I could just reason with you for a second, you, you are looking at, that's a hermeneutic. In other words, that's a way of looking and interpreting the Bible. That is a very self-centered and uninformed way. I mean, you're just sort of grabbing onto a cultural line and you're making that the way that you look at one of the most important issues in the world. And I would encourage you to hang in there with us and think deeply about this issue. There's room to, there's room to disagree and still be loved here at this church. But if you, if you disagree with what I'm saying today and what I'll say next week, can I encourage you to not just take what seems to be a difficult truth that crosses you and just sort of tune it out. I see that's what people do. They, we spend very little time in the American church talking about difficult issues, whether it be something like this or the sovereignty of God or the providence of God, God over suffering and evil. And when, when we come across a truth that just seems like, oh, that can't be, instead of being informed by the scriptures, which, let's be honest, as Americans, we're basically biblically illiterate. I mean, we spend very little time reading the Bible. We just tune it out because we're, we're running everything through the filter of our of our sort of assumptions and opinions. Can I just ask you to humble yourself and wrestle with this truth? And hang in there. Maybe get one of those books and do some reading. And, and, and if you have questions, all the pastors will, will be more than willing to, to labor through this with you. But, but I think for most of us, the, the other reaction to these truths is, is that you would agree with them but these truths feel like a crushing weight on your back. If you're a young soldier, you, you feel like you're carrying the radio and the saw and the 60 all at once, you know? And it just feels like it's like a rucksack with 100 pounds of rock in the back. I mean, you're like, I agree with you, but I am failing. I am a pathetic husband. I am a terrible wife. There is no way that my marriage will ever even begin to live up to anything like this, friends. There's no way. And, and really, when we think about these things, you cringe and you're, you're thinking of an excuse for next Sunday when we really get into the nitty-gritty of it because it just, it just reminds you of your failure. Friends, can I just tell you that that may be exactly where God wants you to be because what he's doing by his Holy Spirit is pressing on you not to lead you into to, to a sort of self-absorbed depression, but to lead you into a self-negating despair so that you turn finally and fully to Jesus. Do you see how he works conviction in our hearts? There's a difference between condemnation, which is of the devil, and conviction, which is of the Holy Spirit. One sends us into a sort of self-absorbed loathing, and another, conviction, sends us into a point of despair where we let go of self and grab a hold of God. And so, so we need to feel desperate. Like, we don't need more 
diligence. We need, need more dependence. We don't need more discipline. We need more desperation for God's way. And that's why being a part of a church and being connected to a group of people like a community group and coming and having your Bible open and leaning forward in the foxhole of marriage is so important because none of us can do this. None of us can be the type of husbands and wives that the Bible calls us to be. So take heart, friends, if this is sitting on you like a, a ton of bricks. This is what J.C. Ryle, and I end with this quote from J.C. Ryle. He's not specifically talking about marriage, but I think this quote applies to any quote or applies to any situation in life where we feel like, I can't do this. J.C. Ryle was a British theologian and pastor back in the 1800s. Another guy with a really cool long beard, like my boy William Arnaud. And this is what J.C. Ryle wrote. When a person turns to Christ empty, that they may be filled. Sick, that they may be healed. Hungry, that they may be satisfied. Thirsty, that they may be refreshed. Needy, that they may be enriched. Dying, that they may have life. Lost, that they may be saved. Guilty, that they may be pardoned. Sin defiled, that they may be cleansed. Confessing that Christ alone can supply their need, or parentheses, help their marriage, or make them into the Christ-like husband, or Christ-like wife that the scriptures call us to be. Then, and only then, they come to Christ. This, and nothing more than this, is coming to Christ. So do you feel the weight of despair and conviction and discouragement? Oh, friends, take heart. We come to Christ empty. Were you not thinking about marriage at all today and just by God's providence, His Holy Spirit was just prying open your heart and you realized that oh, you've made a mess of your life. You've trusted in yourself. You've coveted sin and self-reliance. Do you need to come to Jesus today? Come to him empty and look to Jesus and trust in him. He gave himself up for you that he might cleanse you and make you his own. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us think on these things. The band is going to come back and lead us in some worship after I pray. Communion is open for you to receive if you are a believer in Jesus. The bread represents his broken body and broken on our behalf. The juice represents his spilled blood. You're welcome to come and receive if you are a follower of Jesus. If you need prayer for anything, several of us will be down here after I pray and the team is leading us. Let's grab a hold of these things and reason determined to come to God empty, knowing that he alone can give us what we need. Well, Father, as we come to you now, I know that you draw straight lines with crooked sticks. And certainly my 18 years of being married uh, has been filled with my own crookedness, selfishness, So God, I pray that you would sit heavy on me. I pray that my marriage in particular would be 
better reflection of Christ and his relationship to the church. Lord, I pray that your conviction would come and would show me of my lack and emptiness so that I don't run off into little tips on how to do things better. But I start first with a sense of awe and wonder of what Jesus has done for me and how he has made me alive to be a reflection of that as a husband. Lord, would you do that for me and for my brothers and sisters here in this room that may be in that same similar place of conviction. And Lord, ultimately, the point is not earthly marriage. Ultimately, the point of everything, as we read in Romans eleven thirty six, 36, is that everything's from you and for you and to you for your glory. And in regards to our lives, nothing brings you more glory than when you resurrect a dead sinner. When you give us a heart to believe and eyes to see Jesus. So Lord, if there's anybody in this room today, and I'm certain that there are with a group this size, would you, would you cause that person to turn from trusting in themselves, turn from trusting in sin, turn from trusting in religious performance, turn from trusting in a sense of their own morality, and they would turn empty-handed to Jesus and trust in him and what he did on the cross alone for their right standing with you. And friends, if that's you right now, you don't need to recite a prayer or fill out a card. You need to look to Jesus and say, Jesus, I trust in you alone. Forgive me of my idolatry. Forgive me of my sin. I trust in you alone. I am yours. You, you say that to Jesus. You say that to the Father right now. Father, I come to you because of what Jesus has done. And Lord, would you do these things so that we might be a better picture of you to a dying world around us. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.